Well, I'd like to welcome you with Owen and the rest of the absent congregation to this afternoon service of worship to God. Uh, perhaps uh, before we start, uh, we'll bow our heads in a word of prayer. Lord, we are dependent upon you for light, and we pray that as your word is brought to us just now, that you would give us that hearing ear, that listening faculty, that our hearts may be opened, that our ears may be unstopped, and that we would be listening, submissive servants of the Lord. Be pleased to work in us by your Spirit, and may your word be pleasing to us and glorifying to you as we listen to it. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, uh, if you were with us, we were looking at verses from Psalm 85. And I'd like us, as God leads us, to continue our study of this psalm, at least looking at it not perhaps as deeply as we would like to, but to gain some comfort from it uh, and to uh, get strength from God as we look ahead towards the future. I'd like us to read the psalm. We've read the first seven verses already this morning, but I'd like to just read the psalm as a unit just now. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah, Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of David. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The word of God and we thank him for it, and we seek his blessing now as we meditate on it for a, a short while this afternoon. We were looking back uh, in the first uh, part of our uh, meditation on this psalm, uh, the first seven verses or so, remembering God's goodness and learning from uh, the mistakes that the children of Israel had done in the past. The psalmist was very open about this. And again, uh, to, to repeat what I said this morning with regard to looking back, there's no harm in looking back as long as we do so with God in perspective. 
And that's what the first seven verses of this psalm are doing. Uh, The psalmist is acknowledging the errant ways of God's people. But on top of that, and perhaps in the foreground of the picture, is the favorableness of God in spite of the sinfulness of the people. And of course, there are right and beneficial reasons for us to look back, as I've already said, uh, so that we will avoid those mistakes uh, which are examples for us from the Old Testament scriptures and that we will look positively and act positively positively, (coughs) to improve on what we may have done already in our own past to learn from our own mistakes. And uh, it's true that we find that uh, even in Paul's account of his own past when he was speaking to, for example, uh, King Agrippa, he saw God's hand with him in his past experiences and he was aware of the grace of God. Now, Scripture exhorts us many times to remember the past, especially with reference to God's goodness and God's favor, to the betterment of his own people. God is working out his plan of salvation, and he is chastising his people when they move away from the ways in which he has shown to them wherein they should be walking. And that is still true of us, even in in the gospel era. Uh, There is a tendency for us to move away from what God is asking of us. And I think, just in general, what we have to remember is uh, that history is under God's hand. The history of the world is under God's hand. And it's there for us to look back into in order to show us that there is a narrative, that there's a God who is control. There is a divine narrative in the story of this world from the creation. And that narrative is ongoing. The past is therefore by no means irrelevant to our present, and neither is it for our future. The way we determine how we're going to act in the future in the light of what was done amiss in the past. Now, when we come to Psalm 85 at verse 8, there's a, a change, if you like, in the direction of uh, the psalmist's words. In the first seven verses, it's a prayer. Some commentators call it a lament, but I want to think of it, yes, lamenting for the errors, but I want it to be more positive than that, that in spite of the errors of God's people, the Lord continued to be favorable. The the Lord continued to be good, and he was beneficent towards his people, and not malevolent in any way whatsoever. And here we have, when we come to this part of Psalm 85, we have the psalmist adopting a listening tone. And it's interesting that he goes on into the singular person when he says, it's not let us hear what God will do, but let me hear what God will speak. Let me hear. It's me. I have to listen to God's word for myself. Yes, the people around me have to listen for themselves as well. And I think that is a, a very salutary exhortation 
for us to do as we're on the, uh, on the threshold of a new year, and as another year is just leaving us. So what we have here is, in the first couple of verses in this section, verses 8 and 9, I think there is very much a, a strand of confidence in God's response, in what God has laid up for his people. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. Well, ought we not to be thankful that God the Lord is still speaking to us? He was still speaking to his people there in the Old Testament at this time, post-captivity, post-Babylonian bondage and imprisonment. And the Lord had allowed them to, to, to be there. He determined that they should be there to punish them and to teach them. So in the last section of the psalm, the psalmist expresses faith in God. You were favorable. You restored and restoration in God in spite of their own errant ways. And the proper attitude, I think, uh, of us as believers as we pray for revival, if that is pertinent, and I think it is. I mean, can we say that the church is absolutely on the crest of a wave, the Christian community, whether here in Dundee or anywhere else in the world? It seems to me to be a, a day when there ought to be more uh, life in the church. And I'm speaking for myself as much as for anybody else. Why is that? Why do I say that? Because God has not changed. God remains faithful. But the proper attitude for us is to be submissive to the authority of God's word. And therefore, we must stop and listen to what God is saying to us. I don't think we have to go very far in the New Testament uh, scriptures to find where the writer to the Hebrews, again, I was quoting Hebrews earlier today, but I like <clears throat> what the writer to the Hebrews says in his introductory words to this book. Long time ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The prophets uh, were speaking for God in these days. But in these last days, the days after his revelation in Jesus Christ, the days post-crucifixion, gospel days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And this is what we have to do. The Lord was to be speaking through the prophets <clears throat> sometime after this. And then, as we know from Old Testament history, there was a, a period of silence when for 400 years or so God was silent and there was no, there was no hearing what God uh, was saying, at least through prophets. There was no messenger until John the Baptist came on the scene. But this is what the psalmist says, let me hear, I am willing to hear. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon paraphrases the words of the psalmist here, and he puts them like this, I will be silent. I have spoken to him. This is speaking of what the psalmist has said in the first seven verses. I have spoken to him. Now I will hear what his answer is. I will hold my ear attentive to listen to his voice. We talk about um, New Year resolutions. 
I'm not into New Year resolutions in that sense, in the sense of, well, I'm going to do this, or I'm not going to do that, or I'm going to shed so many pounds, or so on and so forth. But here is one thing that the psalmist was resolving to do. At any time of the year, it's a good resolution. I will be silent, and I have spoken to him. Now I will hear what his answer is. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. And we have to ask ourselves, to what extent are we as individuals and as a congregation willing to listen to God in all the clamor and clatter that exists in the world round about us, all the different voices of human wisdom that seem to be coming our way. To what extent? Well, it would be good for us to pay heed. We must listen. Why? Because he will speak peace. This is the God with whom we are doing business. The God who is speaking peace, having spoken to us in these last days through his son, who is called the Prince of Peace. For he will speak peace. The psalmist was confident in the future goodness of God, speaking peace and not speaking in anger, not speaking against his people. Why? Because their sins have been dealt with. The psalmist was confident in the goodness of God and that God would speak this shalom to his humble, submissive people. He speaks of them here. The Lord will speak to his people and to his saints, to his people. His people are saints because they have been set apart by God himself to be his servants. And what we'll find is that this word in the original language has a very, very similar spelling to the word that stands for grace, for mercy, for steadfast love, as we'll see in a few minutes. He will speak peace to his people who have to be humble and submissive to God. God delights to dwell, says the scriptures, with a people who are of a humble spirit, of a contrite heart, and who tremble at his word, who give reverence to what God says, because the word of God is absolute in its authority. This is the word of peace that is spoken of uh, by Peter speaking in Acts chapter 10, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. There is peace by Jesus Christ, having been spoken in the Old Testament. And this comes through here as we dig a little bit deeper <clears throat> into the words that we have here. In verse 9, we find here, uh, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. But before we come to that, it's interesting the words we find at the end of verse 8. He will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But, but, there is a cautionary word. Let them not return to the foolishness and the idolatry and the worldliness and the self-centeredness that was in their experience in the past. And surely that is relevant for you and me in the present age. 
It is so easy for us to lapse from our faithfulness to God. We are prone to do that. And here we have a cautionary, a cautionary word for us, just as we had in the chapter uh, in Hebrews, chapter 10 of Hebrews, the words which Owen read for us a few minutes ago. So there are parallel cautionary words for us in the, in the gospel era as there were for God's people of old in the past. And it's interesting that, uh, again, quoting Charles Spurgeon, uh, he, said that, he said these words, and I think they're, they're very helpful and very solemn in a way as well for us. He that will not hear the gospel of peace shall never know the peace of the gospel. That's God speaking this peace. If you will not hear the Holy Spirit when he warns you of your sin, neither shall you hear him revealing peace through pardon. And we need to be aware of the Prince of Peace, bringing peace into our existence. We're not to turn back to, to foolishness. We're to uh, practice, by God's grace, humility, submission, and obedience to the word. They're proper, appropriate attitudes for God's people to have. The perfect exemplar of that being the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord's people should turn to him in true repentance, repenting of our sins and not turning back to errant ways, which by implication is still possible for us, as I suggested a few minutes ago. And then we come to this ninth verse. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Well, for us, his salvation is right here. post uh, Christmas, uh, historically, and having just uh, been remembering the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has drawn near to us in ways which we could, in which we could never imagine. The humble and submissive people of God enjoy the nearness of his salvation. And that is what God means to happen that the blessing of God may be in their experience through the gift of his son, the Prince of Peace. And as God moves amongst his people this way, he says, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And what better demonstration of that glory is there than in our present day to see God's people working and worshipping, working for and attributing worship and glory to the Lord in all that they seek to do. That glory may dwell in our land. There seems to be an implication there that there was an absence of the presence of God with, with his people there. Uh, yes, this is echoed in, in the request, in the prayer request earlier on in the psalm. Come back to us, Lord, restore us and revive us. And we, we would keep on, we should keep on doing that. We believe that God is with us. But where is the power of God in the church in this present day? We seem to be under attack from all sorts of directions. But although we sense that, yet we have to believe that God's salvation is near. That God is with us. 
that Emmanuel has indeed come. And even after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, the Lord, before he left the planet to go to heaven, he said to his disciples, I won't leave you as orphans. I will send the counselor, the paraclete, the spirit, the, the, the comforter to be with you. And God is near. And he's near to you. If you are a stranger to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, even this moment as the word is proclaimed to you, God is near to you. And God wants us to be numbered with those who fear him, who are submissive to the Lord in all that he asks us to do, to realize that we have fallen short and that we need him in our lives to, to save us. His salvation is near to us. And he has brought his salvation to us himself. It is not we who pursue that salvation. It is God in his grace that brings it into our proximity. And the glory, his glory, will then be in the church as the church witnesses to the saving and keeping power of the Lord himself. When we come to verse 10, I think another section here begins. The psalmist in verses six and nine, sorry, verses eight and nine, was talking about his confidence in God's response. He knew that God would respond. He will speak peace to his people. He will. I have no doubts about that. I believe that this is what God's salvation is all about. It's all about shalom, prosperity, a sense of God's favor rather than God's, than God's enmity. Steadfast love and faithfulness have met together. They meet. Now, when we come to verse 10, there are beautiful uh, characteristics attributed to God himself and personified in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who was in the eye of faith of the psalmist at this point. But here we have in verse 10 the good righteousness of God, the goodness of God in his righteousness being demonstrated in a prophetic way. And it's almost the way it's being written here that it is happening right before our eyes. Let me read just verses 10 and 11. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Here we have uh, four, there are four attributes here that can only be originally attributed to God himself. There's, uh, I'm reading from the ESV text. Uh, it may be trans these words may be translated differently in uh, other translations. But this word steadfast love is a key word in the whole of Old Testament scripture. It's this covenant loving kindness that God in his goodness bestows on his people. What he wants to show to his people, to demonstrate to his people the steadfast love. It's, it's, it's a love that is 
of grace. It's a, a, an unearned favor of God. It is the most beautiful aspect of all of God's attributes. When the Apostle John says, God is love, and he who dwells in love dwells in God, and God in him. This is not wishy-washy, sentimental love. This is as a covenant love which meant that those who were enemies of God were to be saved from their sin. And he, sh he showed his love to them in punishing someone else in their room and in their stead. Steadfast love and faithfulness. The word steadfast love is sometimes translated mercy and the word faithfulness is sometimes translated truth, mercy and truth. They're a couplet that go together. And here we have them meeting together. The word here translated is, is, is the great Hebrew word chesed. And that word has a similarity to those of whom the psalmist is speaking in verse 8 when he's speaking peace to his people and to his saints the, the, the chesed one, the, the steadfastly loved ones on whom the steadfast love of God, God has been poured and on whom he has poured out his blessing of love. He's made them saints. They have not become saints by themselves in any way whatsoever. It is the Lord who gives to them this personality and it's a Christ-like likeness. Uh, for want of a better description, I think there is no other better description to put it that, this way. He will speak peace to his people and to his saints. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet here. And this verse, you know, it might very well have been the inspiration of the writer of the, the Gospel of John. <clears throat> These words, which are sometimes read at this time of year, the Word became flesh, John 1 and 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of these and then the writer in verse 17 of John, John says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, Faithfulness springs up, sorry, at the end of verse 10, Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Now these are beautiful words. <clears throat> They're beautiful in their Emote, in the emotive language, the original language brings out to us here. Righteousness and peace have, have kissed. Now, the idea of kissing, uh, particularly between a, a male and a female, is a beautiful picture of love and dedication and warmth and self-giving, if you like, uh, in, the, in this context. And that is what God is doing here. Righteousness and peace perhaps were distant from each other through Adam's fall. We might say so. 
even as steadfast love and faithfulness meet, so righteousness and peace greet each other warmly. It might seem that uh, righteousness would condemn you and me because of our sin, the righteousness of God, and prevent God's peace from ever reaching us. But in God's great work of salvation, this is what has happened. These attributes, these beautiful, beautifully descriptive words pertaining to God are brought to us. They come together. In God's great work of salvation, his righteousness and peace are the best of friends. I like the, word, the way one commentator puts it. And it's like this. He's talking about these four divine attributes. Steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. You know, they went in opposite directions at the fall of Adam. They were dismembered, as it were. There was no coming together because of man's sin. But at the coming of the last Adam, as Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a reconciliation being made. And this is what is in the eye of the psalmist as he sees this. They have met. They have kissed each other. They meet. They are meeting. They're kissing each other. It's a beautiful, a beautiful picture of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ dying in our place and standing condemned. If God was dealing with us in accordance with his righteousness and justice, it would be the soul that sins, it shall die. But righteousness could not but give to everyone his due in that sense. And these have met in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a projection, as it were, a looking forward to what happened on a hill far away, on an old rugged cross, the emblem of sadness and shame, where he poured out his life, even Jesus. They met in him. These attributes were reconciled. They were brought together in beautiful harmony when he poured out his life as an offering for sin on Calvary's cross. And of course, in the New Testament letter to the Romans from Paul, we have these words in chapter 3, that he might be just. This is why God this, did this through the Lord Jesus Christ, this reconciliation of these attributes that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. What Christ did at the cross was that he demonstrated his righteousness by offering man. And here we have another word that is familiar to, to us in our theology, justification. He, ju he offered, uh, he demonstrated his righteousness for us, imputing to us, the righteousness of Christ, and he taking our sins in his own, bearing our sins in his own body on the tree, justified, a, a legal verdict of not guilty, while remaining completely just, because the righteous penalty of sin had been paid at the cross, and God could only be just, and simply send every guilty sinner to a lost eternity, as a just judge would do. Only God could find a way to be both just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful picture this, this is, my friends, of the sacrifice that had to be given in order that we might be saved. That is what Christmas was to be all about. God sent his son that he might die for us. And Christmas looks forward to Easter. And Easter looks forward to heaven for the people who trust in the living God. Then we, we come uh, to verse 11. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Just a few comments on the remaining verses of this psalm. God pours out his truth and righteousness. That's his, his faithfulness. They seem to spring forth from creation itself. And prophetically, we may say this refers not only to the reconciliation begun at the cross, but also has in view its completion at the end of the age when even creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, as we have spelt out for us in Paul's letter to the Romans in the eighth chapter. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Where was this faithfulness represented? It was represented in the root of Jesse, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the one and only faithful one, and who, by his Spirit, brings faithfulness into the life of those who are his people. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. It's as though God is saying to us, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I will listen to what God the Lord will speak. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. And the last couple of verses... This is the psalmist still looking forward with, in a positive way, with a positive note. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Now, this is speaking in, in very practical terms, because the peace that is spoken of earlier on is not just a relationship peace, but it's a, a prosperity peace. It is good things, good relationships. It is... Uh, welfare, if you like, uh, uh, and are benefiting from the, the smile of God in the life of his people. He will speak peace to his people. Yes, he, he is faithful, and yes, truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. God pours out his truth and righteousness. They seem to spring forth from creation itself. And that is what is going to happen when the new heavens and a new earth are brought to us. Uh, when the salvation of Christ comes. I don't know what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. But one thing I do know, the word of God tells me that this is a place wherein dwells righteousness. God himself 
God in Christ is at the very center. Righteousness will go before him. We read in verse 13, the Lord, sorry, verse 12, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. There's going to be prosperity in that land. The heavenly Jerusalem is where God's people will see prosperity that is unimaginable. Eye has not seen, nor has it entered into the heart of anyone what God has prepared for them, for those who love him, and who love him because he first loved them. Righteousness will go before him. Righteousness so marks God that it goes before him. It is God in essence, righteousness. And of course, all that God is in himself, righteousness and love and faithfulness and truth. They're all bound together in this God who is greater than we can ever imagine. A God who is good and loving, who will in no wise leave the guilty to go unpunished, but at the same time who has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Well, just to bring this to a conclusion, the psalmist began with a reflection of God's past acts of salvation. And as we draw to the close of the psalm, we are left with a biblical hope in the progression of redemption as God's righteousness advances his kingdom. And what we have to do is that we have to make his footsteps our way. The Lord Jesus Christ is our leader. He is, as the AV puts it, the captain of our salvation. And we listen to him as the supreme commander. He is the head of the church. He is the one to whom we look for direction as we head on to another year. And we have to say, yes, Lord, you have been favorable and faithful to us in the past, despite our erratic ways, our lack of faithfulness to you. And we can only submit to you in all that you have revealed to us of the finished work of Christ and all these blessed attributes that have worked in order to save us, that have come together. It is not wrong for us as individuals and as a congregation of God's people to ask for God to, to enliven us, to bring revivification into our experience and for us to be ready to listen to the word of God. We look with anticipation to see what God has for us in terms of providing us with a new minister. And we trust that whoever that is, whenever that is, that he will be anointed by God to proclaim his word and that we would be listeners to the word of God. Like uh, the child Samuel who heard what he thought was the voice of Eli calling him. And Eli said to him, it is the Lord who's calling you, Samuel. And on the third occasion, Samuel said as he was instructed, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. 
May that be the case for us as we enter another year, as we enter another period of 12 calendar, calendar months. Let us listen to your word, Lord, and see the wonder of the salvation you have worked out for us through him who has these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will speak peace to his saints. And because of him, writes Paul, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. For the kingdom of God, writes Paul, does not consist of eating and drinking, of doing this or doing that ritually, but it consists of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. May these blessings be in our experience as a congregation, as families, as individuals, as we enter a new year. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, for Jesus. We thank you for the love that brought him into this sin-sick world. We thank you for being reminded that in him, truth met with mercy and that righteousness and peace have kissed one another. Lord, we thank you. Bless us now and go before us in this week in which we have entered and forgive sin. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.